it's me. I know it's almost uh, the end of the day, but it's still Wednesday and I'm still here giving it to you. That sounds dirty. I apologize. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it's me, Caitlin. <laughs> here I am. Peekaboo. Um, this is the new episode. The new episode, guys, of Hello Queen, the podcast. So I'm not going to lie. Part of me did not want to do this episode after, even though after, like I told you, I was going to do this episode because there's a lot about Jaws that I can't get into today because I'm going to sound like a activist and I'm not an activist per se. I mean, I kind of am, but I'm not like, uh, I like sharks. I love sharks. And even though this movie was fantastic, a lot of misinformation was spread. A lot of unfortunate things have followed since the release of this movie. And yeah, that's all I can say about that. So if I were going to get into everything that I want to get into, this episode would be 10 freaking hours long. But we're not going to do that. We're going to try to wrap this up before 8 o'clock so we can all go howl at the moon. <laughs> Because, you know, that's a thing, apparently. Um, I'm also kind of doing this, like, very improvised. Because I have been getting feedback that my episodes are not long at all. Like, long enough to some people's standards. So, I realize when I do write stuff down, I tend to read too fast and fly through everything making it less than 20 minutes. So I figure if I don't write things down, I can probably surpass the 20 minute mark. That's going to be my goal. Be longer than 20 minutes. And then we'll go from there because like I said, I'm still learning. This is my learning curve. I get better as the days go on, which speaking of, this is the second to the last episode that you will have to hear my stupid voice on a pair of Apple headphones. Because I have bought an actual good microphone for my recordings. Isn't that fantastic? I will be on really good sound system soon. So this episode and next, week, uh, next week's episode is going to sound really bad because, hello, I'm on my phone. <laughs> and so, yeah. Fun. Ah, sorry, someone just texted me. <laughs> anyway. Yes. So. Count down the days. I will have better sound system soon. Another flash of good news. I am on Apple Podcast. Look up my podcast on Apple Podcast. I am there, my chums. I am freaking there. Next stop is... Spotify and Pandora, but I will figure that out next week. I am just happy that I'm discoverable on Apple Podcasts. You can leave reviews and comments for me on there and subscribe and let me know how I'm doing or even give me suggestions on what I should do for the episodes because OMG, I'm just so happy right now that this is happening because I freaking, like I said, freaking love doing this. I love horror movies to the very 
small atom that I am made of. Whatever. Multiple atoms. I don't know science. I'm not smart. I just love horror movies. I... Oh, anyway. Whew, back on... <laughs> back on it. Let's get back to Joss before I lose my shit because I'm just happy guys. And when I'm happy, the world is happy. I'm just kidding. I don't have that kind of control over the world. I wish. Anyway, <laughs> let's just do what we normally do with horror movies that I review and start with the synopsis, shall we? If it'll move. <laughs> I am on my awful, awful computer, so bear with, because it's awful. Um, so here's the synopsis. When a young woman is killed by a shark while skinny dipping, the hooker, near the New England tourist town of Amity Island, police chief Martin Brody, what, what, wants to close the beaches, but Mayor Larry Vaughn <coughs> overrules him, fearing that the loss of tourist revenue will cripple the town. That sounds familiar. <laughs> this word I cannot pronounce for the life of me and I'm not even going to try so I'm just going to say marine biologist Matt Hooper and grizzled ship captain Quint offer to help Brody capture the killer beast and the trio engage in an epic battle of man versus nature sorry I had to do that that was i I, I don't know why I keep saying sorry. I don't apologize for my weirdness. I think it's awesome. Anyway. <laughs> uh, directed by Steven Spielberg. Story by Peter Benchley. He wrote the book. He really did. The book called Jaws. Music composed by John Williams. Screenplay, uh, screenplay by Carl Gottlieb. Peter Benchley and Howard Sackler. The current ratings online are an 8 out of 10 on IMDb. A 98% on Rotten Tomatoes, an 87% on Metacritic, and I didn't know this was a thing, but an 88% on Google, because apparently that's a thing now. Whatever. Um, Jaws won three Academy Awards, one for Best Original Musical Score, one for Best Film Editing, and then another one for the Best Sound Mixing. It won a People's Choice Awards for Favorite uh, Movie, a Golden Globe Award for Best Original Score, and then a BAFTA Award for Best Original Music. It swept up all. Swept. Swept. Swept up all of the awards <laughs> during award season. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. I am going to be giving you a list of 25 incisive facts about Jaws, which can be found on mentalfloss.com, written by a Mr. Sean Hutchinson on June 20th, 2018. Okay. Anyway, like I said, the um, movie's based on a book. So the first fact is that the book could have been called something else. Can you imagine Jaws being called The Stillness in the Water, The Silence of the Deep, Leviathan Rising, or The Jaws of Death? Because I don't think I could. I really don't think I could. I think Jaws just sums it up pretty well. It's a fantastic movie. And it's, they need to stick with that name forever and ever. Never change it. The book's author makes a cameo in the movie. Benchley himself can be seen in a cameo in the film as the news reporter who addresses the camera on the beach. Benchley had previously worked as a news reporter for the Washington Post before penning Jaws. 
Steven Spielberg also makes a cameo in the movie. His voice is the Amity Island dispatcher who calls Quint's boat the Orca with Sheriff Brody's wife on the line. I did not know that, however. That is very cool. That's awesome. Number three, Steven Spielberg got the directing job because of Duel. In my own little tidbit, they also used the sound from the truck crashing to be the sound of the shark in Jaws. Really freaking cool. I like Duel, if you can't tell. Part of the reason why I like Duel is because the main actor looks a lot like my grandpa, even though it's not my grandpa. It's funny. <laughs> Number four, there's not a lot of Jaws in Jaws. The shark doesn't fully appear in a shot until one hour and 21 minutes into the two-hour film. The reason isn't shown is... I am so dyslexic, guys. I apologize. The reason it isn't shown is because the mechanical shark that was built uh, rarely worked during the filming. So Spielberg had to create inventive ways like Quint's yellow barrels to shoot around the non-functional shark. That's fantastic. Man... Spielberg is resourceful, isn't he? Number five, it took a very long time to make. Jaws was marred with so many technical problems, including the shark not working and shooting in the Atlantic Ocean, that the original schedule 65-day shoot ballooned into 159 days, not counting post-production. Dang! That is a long time to shoot. Number six, Amity Island was actually called Martha's Vineyard. Whoa. To create the fictional town of Amity, the protection shot on location in Egertown and I can't say these words, Menemsha on Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. <laughs> Strict land ordinance kept the production from building anywhere. Quince Shack was the one and only set built for the movie, while the defaced Amity Island billboard had to be constructed and taken down all in one day. Jeez, imagine putting all of that time and effort into painting a mural and defacing it, obviously, and then having to take it down in one day. That's crazy. Number seven, the shark weighed more than a ton. The pneumatically powered shark designed and built by production designer Joe Alves weighed in at 1.2 tons and measured 25 feet in length. Part of the reason that Martha's Vineyard was chosen as a location was because the surrounding ocean bed had a depth of 35 feet for up to 12 miles offshore, which was perfect for scenes that required the mechanical shark rig to be rested on the shallow ocean floor. Number eight, Spielberg took inspiration from his legal counsel. Ooh. Oh my gosh. Okay, so the director nicknamed the shark Bruce, like Finding Nemo. After his lawyer, Bruce Raymer, who also currently represents other celebrities like Demi Moore, Ben Stiller, and Clint Eastwood. How cool is that, guys? I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty impressed. I just really like that his name's Bruce because he never knew his father. I like Finding Nemo and I don't apologize for that one bit. Number nine, some good old fashioned elbow grease helped create the opening scene. Yeah, and quite a bit of injuries, too. The opening scene took three days to shoot. To achieve the jolting motions of the shark attacking the swimmer in the opening sequence, a harness with cables was attached to Susan Backlinny's legs 
and was pulled by crew members back and forth along the shoreline. Spielberg told the crew not to let back Lenny know when she would be yanked back and forth, so her terrified reaction is genuine. She actually ended up getting a lot of injuries as well during that scene, so... Wow. <laughs> Spielberg went on to spoof his own opening scene for Jaws in his 1979 World War II comedy, 1941. I have that movie. It's funny. The scene features back Lenny once again taking a skinny dip at the beach, but instead of being attacked by a shark, she's scooped up by a passing Japanese submarine. Interesting. Number 10, some eavesdropping got Roy Sheeter the lead. I can't pronounce his last name. Anyway, he got the part of Chief Brody after overhearing Spielberg talking to a friend at Hollywood party about the scene where the shark leaps out of the water and onto Quint's boat. And he was instantly enthralled and asked Spielberg if he couldn't, uh, if he could be in the film. Spielberg loved him from his, uh, his role in the French connection and later offered the actor the part. That's, I guess when you know someone, you know someone, right? Uh, number 11, Richard Dreyfus wasn't the first choice to play Hooper. Actually, uh, John Voight and Timothy Bottoms and Jeff Bridges were um, approached. I can't imagine, you know, Hooper being played by any of those actors, especially John Voight. Like, no, I can't. That's weird. I think it. Richard Dreyfus would have not would have. He did an amazing job. I don't think any of those other actors would have done that role justice. But you know, in an alternative world, we might be saying something else. It had uh, someone else gotten that job. But you know, this is this reality, and Richard Dreyfus got it. <laughs> Number twelve. Robert Shaw wasn't the first choice to play Quint. Wow. I don't know any of these people. <laughs> Lee Marvin and Sterling Hayden were first and second choices to play Quint. So, um, I think I need to do some freshening up on these people. But yeah, uh, that's crazy. Another person that I can't imagine not being in that role. Uh, number 13. A local Martha's Vineyard fisherman was the real Quint. Shaw based his performance on Quint, on Martha's Vineyard native, um, fisherman Craig Kingsbury, a non-actor who appears in the film as Ben Gardner. He uh, is the one with the camo uh, jacket and the orange vest underneath that is like sitting up with his arms over the, uh, I guess, the windshield of his speedboat. He does look a little bit like Quint, like an overweight Quint. <laughs> Kingsbury helped Shaw with his accent and allegedly told Shaw old sea stories that the actor incorporated into his improvised dialogue as Quint. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Number 14, Gregory Peck forced a scene to be cut from the movie. In early drafts of the screenplay, Quint was originally introduced while causing a disturbance in a movie theater while watching John Huston's 1958 adaption of Moby Dick. The scene was shot, but actor Gregory Peck, who plays Captain Ahab in the movie, owned the rights of the film version of Moby Dick and wouldn't let filmmakers on Jaws use the footage. So the sequence was cut. That's stupid. I mean, that's advertisement for your movie, but whatever. 
The book was very different from the movie. That's number 15. But let's be honest. What movie is the exact same as the book? Like, let's be honest. I mean, Harry Potter has a significant amount of differences. And so does Twilight. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't mean to throw up on the, on the, live on the air where you can't see sweaty ass cheeks. <laughs> Anyway, uh, number 16, Spielberg added an off-screen improv moment. Um, the scene where Brody's son, Sean, mimics his father's movements at the dinner table was based on a real thing that happened between Brody and the child actor, Jay Mello, in between takes. Spielberg loved the off-the-cuff moment so much that he restaged it and put it in the movie. That's cute. I actually did not know that. I really do like that scene, too, because it's adorable. And another iconic moment was also spontaneous, was Brody's famous, you're going to need a bigger boat line, was entirely improvised on the day of shooting. Number 17, Robert Shaw put his own spin on the Indianapolis speech. Quint. Quint. Sorry. USS Indianapolis speech wasn't in the novel. And the backstory of Quint being a sailor on the ship first appeared in an uncredited rewrite of the script by playwright Howard Sackler. Later, writer-director and Spielberg's friend John Milius expanded the characteristic into a multi-page monologue, which was the whittled down and spruced up by the actor Robert Shaw himself on the day of shooting. Okay. It's not really that important to know, but cool. 18. Some real shark footage was used. Zanuck demanded that real shark footage be used in the movie. And Spielberg used it sparingly. He hired experts Ron and Valerie Taylor to shoot footage of 14-foot sharks off the coast of Australia. For scale, they hired a little person actor, oh my god, named Carl Rizzo to appear as Hooper in a mini shark cage. I am so done! Oh no! After trying to get the right shot for about a week, the sharks would only swim around the cage. Then during a take when Rizzo wasn't in the cage, a shark became entangled in the cage's bridle, causing it to thrash and roll around. The footage was included in the final film. Oh my goodness, that's hilarious! Despite all the bloody shark attacks, the movie is rated PG. Jaws was initially rated R by the MPAA, but after some of the more gruesome frames of the shot showing the severed leg of the man attacked by the shark in the uh, estuary were trimmed down. The film was given a PG rating. <sighs> the poster for the film still reads that the movie may be too intense for younger children. I don't trust ratings anyway because the MPAA is like stupid, but whatever. <laughs> Number 20, Spielberg didn't direct some of the final scenes. In fact, he had already returned to Los Angeles to begin post-production on the film after the film's grueling shooting schedule and left the shot up to the production's second unit. Which, let's be honest, was okay because, you know, the movie's still great. The poster image came out by chance. Okay. Let's see what that means, because it's a really long poster. The film's iconic poster was designed by Roger Castle for, for the paperback edition of Benchley's book. Castle modeled the image of a massive shark emerging from the bottom of the frame after a great white shark diorama at the American Museum of Natural History. 
The female swimmer at the top was actually a model that Castell was sketching at his studio for an ad in Good Housekeeping. Wow, okay. He asked her to stay an extra half hour and had her pose for the image by standing on a stool and pretending to swim. Oh, man. That's... I mean, that's not by chance. I mean, you could have done that with anybody, but that's still fantastic. I mean, I would have never guessed that he, you know, did stuff for good housekeeping. But that's, that's a good... I like the poster. Number 22, Jaws was huge. Jaws was the first movie released in more than 400 theaters in the United States and the first movie to gross over $100 million at that box office. It was the highest grossing movie of all time until Star Wars was released two years later. Yeah! Don't fight the wars. The Star Wars. Mm, so weird. Number 23, Spielberg included a nod to his previous movie. Oh, I did not know that my little fun fact was on this list, but here it is. The faint roaring sound that is heard after the shark is blown up was also used by Spielberg in Duel when the film's villainous truck falls off a cliff. I told you. I told y'all. Some of y'all didn't believe me, but here we are. Y'all look like fools. <laughs> Number 24, it originally ended like Moby Dick. Good thing it didn't, because clearly them Moby Dicksters are... Very shysty. Number 25, the main theme music is easy to play. <laughs> the sole music notes played for composer John Williams' Jaws theme are E and F. Jaws marked the second time Williams worked with Spielberg after his film The Sugarland Express, and Williams has composed the music for every Spielberg movie since, with the exception of 1985's The Color Purple and 2015's Bridge of Spies. Okay, cool. Mm. That's a very interesting list. Some of it I already knew. Some of it I didn't actually know. But okay, anyway. Let's um, move on next to any truth behind Jaws. I don't believe there are any truths because, well, that's more on it after like, this. I will get into that because this is a very touchy subject to me but what I want to talk about right now is draws a true story I totally just butchered what I just said because I am ridiculous I am on history versus hollywood.com citing my information is Jaws a true story no Jaws is not a true story it is based on the book of the same name, the Jaws author had a lifelong fascination with sharks and said that he came up with the concept for the novel after reading about a great white shark that had been caught by fisherman Frank Mundus in 1964. Okay. Oh, there's the picture. Is Quint's speech about the USS Indianapolis historian? Uh, <laughs> wow, history historically accurate wow let's just talk about how much i cannot talk today it's bad <laughs> still can't even say steven spielberg guys i need to get out of my apartment i need to touch a person's face just to poke it not to do anything weird just poke it anyway <sighs> Let's get over this quarantine. 
Anyway, Steven Spielberg has cited Robert Shaw's Indianapolis speech in Jaws as being the most powerful scene in the movie. I don't know. That slap from Mrs. Kintner. That was pretty powerful. Returning from a top secret mission to deliver parts for the Hiroshima atomic bomb to Tinian Island, the ship was struck in the side by two torpedoes from a Japanese submarine. It sunk in 12 minutes. Of the 1196 men aboard, approximately 300 men went under the, with the ship and roughly 900 st uh, struggled to remain alive in shark-infested waters. Dehydration, saltwater poisoning, exposure, and injury sustained on the ship were also threats. I really doubt that sharks have attacked them, but that's not up to me to decide that I wasn't there. I have no input on the situation. I just really don't believe that they were attacked by sharks. We are not delicious to them. They hate our nasty meat because we are disgusting. How would I know that? I don't know. I'm not Jeffrey Dahmer. Don't ask me questions. Or do. I'm okay with questions. <laughs> Was Jaws inspired by the 1916 New Jersey shark attacks? No, at least not according to Jaws author Peter Benchley. Again, we are not delicious to sharks. It was just an attack, not a feeding why do the 1916 Jersey Shore shark attacks continue to be falsely cited as the main inspiration of Jaws? Now, that's actually a really good question. Let's find out together. Even though Jaws is not based on true story, most news outlets continue to cite the information for Jaws as being the 1916 Jersey Shore shark attacks. Despite the Jaws author denying the claim, there are two main reasons for this. The first is that the in the movie, Roy Shea... Uh, I cannot say his last name. Roy... His character, Brody, Amity Island's chief of police, urges the mayor to close the beaches, stating, and there's no limit to what he's going to do. I mean, we've already had three incidents, two people killed inside of a week, and it's going to happen again. It happened before. The Jersey Beach, 1916, five people chewed up on the surf. Okay, well, yeah, I can see how they think that this movie is based off of whatever. Anyway. Second, the movie shares a number of similar similarities with the 1916 shark attacks along the Jersey Shore, which claimed four lives and left a teenager injured. Like in the movie, the first two victims were killed inside of a week. The shark then killed two more people in the Madawin Creek, an estuary that connects into the Raritan Bay. In the film, the shark kills a man when it swims into a nearby estuary. I can not speak sorry a growing panic along new jersey coast was similar to the panic that erupts in the amity island area in the movie armed motorboat patrols that beat uh, the beaches and shark oh my god someone help me armed motorboats patrolled the beaches and shark hunting part uh, parties with rifles set out in search of the jersey shore shark See, this is just a bunch of tongue twisters. How do you expect me not to get things mixed up? Jersey Shore Shark. <laughs> Say that five times fast. They even tried to use dynamite to explode the shark. Though the attempt was unsuccessful, the movie, in the movie, Brody, Quentin, Hooper set out to hunt the shark. Brody uses a rifle to shoot a pressurized scuba tank and in the shark's mouth, causing it to explode. Yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> 
I think that's it on truth versus Hollywood because it's all repeating itself and I'm pretty sure we're a little over it listening to me babble about sharks. So let's just talk about some of the devastating things that have happened since the movie has been released. We have started overfishing on sharks. They kill about, I want to say, 10 people a year where we kill 100 million sharks a year. That is awful. That is not okay. I really wish we could control the laws on fishing for some countries because I believe that it is China that does the most shark fishing for their stupid nasty shark fin soup because the way that they uh, fish for these sharks is that they cut off their fins and throw them back into the ocean that is the equivalent of someone cutting off your legs and arms and throwing you into the ocean leaving you to suffocate and die that's how it is for sharks as much as I love this movie as much as this movie is iconic and fantastic and well made to the point where if they make a remake, I will protest and pick at the lines because no, it doesn't need a remake. But anyway, as much as I love this movie, it spreads so much misinformation and so much irrational fear to the point where a lot of species of sharks have gone endangered. Now, I'm not going to come on here and preach to you how much I care about sharks because I really do. I love sharks. They're fantastic. They're cute and cuddly, even though I probably wouldn't cuddle with one, but <laughs> they're awesome. And as much as I want to just sit here and talk about reasons why we shouldn't kill them, I'm not going to do that because, again, we would be here for 10 hours. So I really want to stress the fact that we need to stop fishing for sharks Research them, yes, but not if it means harming them. The water is their domain. If we were meant to live in the ocean, we would have gills. But we don't. We live on land because we can only breathe oxygen. If we could breathe H2O, that'd be fantastic. But we can't. So that's all I have to say about that. Let's move in to some news in the horror community. And then we will finish off the night. I'm getting my news from Horror News Network. Gotta stay up to date on a lot of things. Universal Nav's rights to Crave. A young adult vampire book. Cannibal Holocaust video game announced. That would be interesting. I think I might get it if it gets released on Switch. Wouldn't that be really cool? A Cannibal Holocaust video game? 2020 is shaping up to be one of the oddest years in recent history. No doubt about that. Let's click on this. I really hate my computer. It decided to just stop right as I clicked on it. Give me one second, guys. I swear I'm going to get a new computer soon because I'm losing my mind. Let's go ahead and exit out of some of these. All right. Cannibal Holocaust video game announced.
All right, let's start that over. 2020 is shaping up to be one of the oddest years in recent history. No doubt about that. So far, we have had the U.S. Senate acquit the president of the United States, a virus that has killed nearly 87,000 people worldwide, a toilet paper shortage, and now on top of all of that, a cannibal holocaust game has been announced. On the website, Fantastico Studios has announced that on the 40th anniversary of the release of the cult film Cannibal Holocaust, director Ruggiero Diodota, Diodato, announces the fourth highly awaited chapter of his cannibal cycle with great news that the new episode will not be a movie but a video game created in collaboration with fantastico studio that is fantastico the game will be available for nintendo switch that's what i have ps4 xbox one pc and mobile y'all i'm excited this is exciting all right, let's go back to Universal Nab's rights to Crave. If it will go. Universal has acquired the movie rights to Crave, a young adult vampire novel by Tracy Wolf, a New York Times bestselling author, according to Deadline. The book reportedly follows a human girl who becomes involved in a dangerous situation when she falls in love. <laughs> I hate this. Stop it. The vampire stuff is over. Ew. Sorry. I didn't mean to freak out. I, I'm done. I am done. I hate this vampire crap. Let it die already. Jesus. Marie Joseph. <sighs> okay, so last thing, last but not least, let's end on a better note than fucking vampires. <sighs> fucking hate this. Robert Cuccioli talks Jekyll and Hyde and Spider-Man Turn of the Dark, Turn Off the Dark. From 1997 to 1999, he was the king of horror on Broadway. He was uh, the star of the enormously popular musical Jekyll and Hyde at the Plymouth Theater in Manhattan. Thrilled theater goers with his electric performance as both Henry Jekyll and Edward Hyde. The long-running musical written by Frank Wildhorn and Leslie Brickus played the SRO crowds for years, captivating audiences with both the classic storyline and the blockbuster musical numbers. He won a Drama Desk Award for his efforts, spoke exclusively with Horror News Network about his run on Jekyll and Hyde. I totally just burped and you probably just heard it and I do not apologize because it's a natural bodily function. Anyway, about his run in Jekyll and Hyde as well as his background and future stage plans. Broadway, of course, has been dark during the current coronavirus crisis, but the uh, veteran actor looks forward to returning to what he loves to do as soon as possible. When asked if he was familiar with the famous novella by Robert Louis Stevenson before tackling the demanding role, he said he read the story, but I had to read it again before I auditioned for the show. Gothic horror thrillers had already been set to the music before, such as Phantom of the Opera and Sweeney Todd, to great success, so I wasn't apprehensive about adapting the story into a musical format. It was good, and this one was. So cool that's all I have to say about that didn't realize that it was basically just talking about his <laughs> experience so 
that was boring. Not as fun as I thought it would be. But yeah. <laughs> Uh, I will bring you more news next week. I'm not going to tell you what I'm doing next week because I don't know what I'm going to do next week. I know I want to review some indie films, so we're going to look into that. I'm going to figure something out, and we'll go from there. So until then, my spooky friends, stay creepy, wash your hands, clean your butts, practice good personal hygiene, and go poke a face. Preferably your face so we don't, you know, spread coronavirus, but I need to poke a face. I'll poke my dog's face, I guess, because that's all I have with me. <laughs> this needs to end soon, guys. I'm going insane. I don't know how much longer I can deal with being in quarantine. Anyway, have a good night, guys. Let's go howl at the moon.